0: Have you ever wondered about how your favorite newsletter ended up in your inbox? Who sent it? Why was that email scheduled for that particular time? And what is being tracked when you click that open button? Most likely, those questions haven't crossed your mind, but that doesn't change the fact that the digital trail a simple email creates can have a lasting impact on your online persona. Welcome to the world of email marketing specifically the MailChimp universe, which includes an all-in-one marketing platform that delivers more emails daily than the average consumer can even fathom.
1: We didn't send 2 billion emails on Black Friday. We delivered 2 billion emails. What's really interesting for MailChimp as a platform is that delivery is hard and it's a big part of it, but that's really where the story begins, at least when it comes to the email side of things, because delivering it starts it, and then they open it, which gets tracked, they click it, and then when they click it and they go out to do a thing, they may now land on a MailChimp property. All of those activities the user is taking is gonna drive their marketing properly.
0: Eric Muntz is the CTO of MailChimp, and on this episode of IT Visionaries, he dives into the ins and outs of how the email delivery giant has expanded its offerings in an effort to democratize marketing tools. Eric also touches on why email delivery is just the beginning of any marketing journey and how Mailchimp effectively scaled from a few thousand users to millions of users. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee and scale with confidence from anywhere, with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.
2: Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the Chief Technology Officer at MailChimp, Eric Munz. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Look, we're going to, we always let all of our guests tell us what they do and what their company does. I feel like everyone on earth knows what MailChimp is and does, but you know, who knows? Maybe someone doesn't. Tell Eric, before we get going, tell us what is MailChimp and what it does.
1: Yeah. So MailChimp is an all-in-one marketing platform for small businesses. I think when you say everyone knows what it, what it is and what it does, people think of where we started, which is an email service provider. But for the last several years, we've really migrated to an all-in-one uh, marketing platform for small businesses. So that's what we are. SaaS product. Uh, do-it-yourself, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, with offices all through the US and Canada, um, about 1,200 employees today.
2: All right. So maybe let's dive into that one piece a little bit, because when I first encountered MailChimp, it was just, and I don't want to say just, because email service provide, services have advanced quite a bit, but it was an email service provider. Now you guys talk about being an all-in-one marketing platform. What does that mean for MailChimp? What does that mean for you as the CTO in terms of the products and services you have to develop or support for your customers?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things in there. It's, it's pretty interesting because MailChimp's brand, we really market ourselves like we're a B2C company, right? So a lot of people, when they think of us, they're, they're really, they're thinking about our, you know, Freddie, our mascot and all of the fun stuff we do and all of that. And of course, they're thinking about all the emails they get in their inboxes. But when you really start to think about it, we're one of those b 2 b to c companies, right? Where we're really focused on our users who are small businesses, you know, 1 to 50 or 100. Uh, we have a lot of micropreneurs and a lot of just single, single person companies who are using our platform. And so all of our features and everything that we're building for marketing are all about democratizing what large enterprise marketing teams have at their disposal for really small companies and just individuals, right? So... I sometimes like to think of us as like staff augmentation for, for a small business because we can provide a marketing staff with our suite, right? So what we're able to do, of course, is email marketing because it's our core. It's where we started and we're super good at it. But we also provide you know, list management, contact management, the ability to look at what's going on with your contacts. We allow you to build websites. You can buy domains. We, we just added some new features to our website builder. We've had landing pages for several years. So if you're wanting to do pop-up sales or flash sales, you know, you can build landing pages for that. You can connect e-commerce platforms and do really powerful automation that oftentimes is only available to teams with, you know, people with a, a ton of marketing expertise and a ton of time and ability and all of that. We provide it in a really slick one click, you know, drag and drop style editor that makes it super approachable and super easy for, for the average small business.
2: Yeah. I remember when, cause I've always, my personal side, I've always had many e-commerce businesses. So not only do I work in mission, I'm also a micropreneur, I guess. It's like you said, I have a little e-commerce business that does some revenues, but I remember the first time when I was shopping ESPs, I chose MailChimp simply because it had visual editing capability and I'm not a graphic designer. So I was able to take photos and graphics and things like that and make adjustments to it. And then I said, okay, this makes more sense to me because I can do this versus, you know, hiring someone on Fiverr or whatever I needed to get in terms of like a little graphic adjustment done.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's exactly what we're shooting for. And, you know, what's really funny is um, that's how actually I started at MailChimp is I was a customer before I was an employee. So I ran a small consulting business before I was working at MailChimp and uh, I got a little tired of my time being the only thing I had of value. And um, I started building software suite products that I was going to, going to release to the world. And I realized, Hey, you know, I'm pretty good at building software. It's what I've done for a long time, but I am terrible at selling. software. <laughs> I, have no idea how to, I have no idea how to sell it. I have no idea how to market it. So, and this was so long ago that my niche was BlackBerry development. You remember those devices?
2: Oh yeah. BlackBerry handheld devices <laughs> with the physical buttons. I remember the first time I saw the iPhone, I was like, oh, that's never going to work, man. People like buttons.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> totally the same. Totally, right. totally the same. Um, and it was a great niche because BlackBerry development was not for the faint of heart, right? Like a, the one class I had to make an HTTP network request was a thousand lines of code, right? So it was, it was not for the faint of heart. So I was like, okay, I've got this good niche what I'll do is I'll find companies that have a lot of customers and have a captive audience and I'll build some software for, for them. I'll build a BlackBerry application for them if they've got an open API. So I built one for FreshBooks, the online invoicing system. Yep. Yep. First one I built, uh, it was scratching my own itch because I was using it in my consulting practice and I marketed it with MailChimp. And then, you know, it, it went well and I was like, okay, time to build my second one. Hey, maybe I'll, I'll build one for MailChimp. So in uh, December of 2009, I built and launched a BlackBerry app for MailChimp. And the morning I launched it, I got an email from a guy named Ben Chestnut, who happens to be Mailchimp CEO and co-founder, Yeah, saying, hey, we saw your app. It's really cool. We like it. Thanks for doing it. Now we don't have to. we <laughs> was just totally perfectly on brand for Ben, right? And he says, hey, but and we also noticed you're in Atlanta, and we have a really hard time finding software engineers. Any chance you're interested in a job? And I said, nope consulting is going great. You know, I'm really trying to do this product thing. Things are going well. Thanks anyway. And he said, Oh, it's fine. You know, it doesn't hurt to ask. We just love great people and great work. And he and I exchanged maybe four or five emails. And I said, you know what? This sounds kind of amazing. Maybe I should come in and just meet you just to be, just to be sure.
2: Let's back up to that moment in time. Cause it yeah. says, you know, 2010, Yep. how big was the company at the time? Cause you got to, a- you have an really awesome story, right? You're a software engineer and it looks like you just built your career from there and now you're a CTO. So we, you know, we would love to take our listeners through this journey. So yeah. walk us through that door. 2010, MailChimp, how many employees did it have? What did you feel like when you were walking into it? Because now that we know that you were a BlackBerry developer prior, it's pretty interesting <laughs> because I believe in 2007, the iPhone debuts. Yep. And I remember seeing a stat. That from 2007 to 2011, Blackberry sales actually continually t- rose. It wasn't until 2012 that Blackberry sales started to fall and iPhone sales started to surpass it. Yeah. I'm curious, did you see that coming? Like, what, was your, what were some of your thought decisions to join a company at the time, which, you know, like you said, you didn't really, you had not heard of, but you did use. I guess you had heard of it because you used the service.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had heard of it. Uh, you know, in 2009, they been, made a big splash with freemium. And, you know, so everybody had sort of seen that. So I definitely heard of it. Um, I knew they were in Atlanta. I didn't know anyone who worked there and didn't really seek anyone out. And so I was the 33rd employee. So there were 33 people in 2010 when I joined. We had about 300,000 customers. We have over 12 million today. <laughs> Way back then, sending a million emails a day would have been, you know, was like, whoa, we hit a million. It's amazing. Yeah. And we do that in seconds today. I was actually the third engineer. So MailChimp was a really, really small team. So I was the third engineer who was working on the product. What else was super interesting is, you know, especially for the tech audience out there listening, is that I had never written a line of PHP and MailChimp was a PHP shop. And like a lot of people, I was pretty terrified. I was (laughs) like, PHP, I'm not sure about this.
2: Did you tell the recruiters or did you tell the company that before you got started?
1: (laughs) I did, yeah. You know they, the one of the greatest things about about Ben and the approach they took at the time was, they said, you know, we don't care about pedigree. We don't want to see a resume. We just want to hire great engineers. Just send us some code, and we'll just talk about the code when you come in to meet. Which, as a person who's not classically trained in software engineering, I have a math degree, was like a, almost a dream come true, right? Because um, I have a really hard time talking the talk about some engineering things sometimes because I don't have a deep background in it, right? I don't. If we're going to talk about like memory allocation and compilers, I'm not your guy. I'm going to sit here silent. But if we want to talk about code I've written or code we can write or, or what users want or what the business needs around, around software. Then I'm your guy, right? Then I get real excited. So it was pretty perfect. So I sent them my BlackBerry code and I said, well, here's, here's my BlackBerry code that uses your service. Let's come in and talk about it. We came in and chatted. I spent like an hour, hour and a half with the guy who was the lead engineer at the time and the former COO. And it was just a phenomenal conversation and, you know, as part of it, and I think this is, is what really got them to say, okay, time to hire this guy. Is I said, Hey, uh, you know, not to like sound dicey or anything, but I showed you mine, show me yours. (laughs) I'm a little bit scared of PHP and I want to see some code. Um, I want, you know, you're talking a good game. You're saying object oriented and you're saying you got this great template library and all this stuff, but I've, I've had enough jobs that, that said that the, yeah, The software environment was great, and then it really wasn't. So let's take a look. Um, and he showed me a little bit of code, and I was like, yeah, okay. This, this actually looks like Java. It's just got dollar signs in front of variables.
2: So how long did it take you before you thought you were pretty, pretty well-versed in PHP, contributing quite a bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was contributing enough to have fully broken MailChimp in about three months. So, um, <laughs> What do you mean fully yeah. broken? <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe it was closer to six months. We had a release in September of 2010 that uh, was the first time I completely took MailChimp down. So uh, I put I put a really gnarly SQL query with some PHP code in front of it that hit our our dashboard in September, and that was that was the first of many times that I have I have brought the service to its knees. Sorry, all customers. <laughs> uh, we're, getting, we're getting way better on that. Yeah. So it was probably I mean it was probably three to six months before I was like, all right, yeah, I've got a hang of this and I can really just I can really just run, run with it and just get a ton of work done.
2: So I'm going to r- run our audience through a list of your, your position changes at MailChimp. Yeah. And I'll, lead, and I'll go over to a question. But for those who are not aware, Eric started as a software engineer. He becomes head of development within two years. Within another two years, he becomes the VP of product, which I'm definitely going to ask you some questions about because a lot of times people in product don't know how to code, but if, clearly you do. So I'll <laughs> tell you, you know, your opinions on your advantages there. Then you become VP of engineering, so I'm assuming you're supporting all the product now. <laughs> now you're now you're in charge of all the codes that support infrastructure. Your infrastructure is continuing expanding, and then you were named CTO three years later. So you've built you know a decade more experience inside of Mailchimp. You've basically over you've seen the evolution of ESP industry, right? You've been there so almost at the beginning. You've seen the introduction of SMS landing pages, like you said. Talk to me about your what you've seen in regards to like what it means to support a, a fast moving technology like this, what are some of the skills you think for our audience to understand? Like, Hey, this is what I understood. It helped me a great deal. If you could carry us through any of these stories about how these skills helped you evolve, because you kind of hit right off the gate, which was, I didn't really understand the language that it was written in, but I could kind of foresee and learn the language and foresee and learn and understand what some of the new things were going to be and how you adapted those into like you know your skill set, really.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the the most important thing that I started with was uh, an intense desire to understand our customers and all of our business, and not just focus on like putting headphones on and, and writing code and, and being some PHP code master. Uh, I came in thinking, all right, I want to be. I actually did take a take a moment and take a big deep breath and told myself, I'm going into a job where nobody knows me, and. I've been branded the grumpy engineer, uh, (laughs) the grumpy engineer who gets a lot of work done, but is very grumpy. I don't want to be branded that. What do I actually want my personal brand to be in this job? And I decided on being the helpful engineer. So what that meant to me was being the person who helped other departments make our business better. So I really tried to understand support. I formed a great relationship with our CFO at the time and tried to help make sure that finance was taken care of. You know, I changed our billing system twice in my tenure while I was still writing code. And then one of the biggest things that really happened to me was, you know, I don't consider myself like the best of the best super 10X coder or whatever people would say about the best developers these days.
2: <laughs> yeah. You do hear that thrown out like, oh, you need yourself 10X developers.
1: Yeah. No, I've never considered myself that type of that type of engineer. I consider myself more the type that could understand customers and understood product, right? Like I was really a product engineer that I could say, oh, we can make these trade-offs and then build a really great product for customers that's reliable and gives them what they want. And then we hired a few more folks that were in that mold and were just way better engineers than me. And it really was those moments where I said, well, the best thing I can do is make it really easy for them to get a ton of work done and just try to get out of their way. So some of the first skills were learning about you know, just really people management and how to hire good teams, how to recruit the right people. Right. I was kind of granted the gift of having PHP. So people would be like prima donna engineers, you know, who cared so much about that would be like, ah, I can't work there. No way. I go, well, then you're not right for us. Right. (laughs) And then people who I would say, who I would say, Hey, you know, as we really started scaling, I'd say, Hey, we have about a one to a million product engineer to customer ratio. And the people who would light up and go, wow, I want to make that kind of impact, right? Those were the people that, that we had to hire. So really being able to hone your skills and figure out for you. And I'm not saying that's the right fit for everybody. Of course, it, it depends on your customer base and your company, but figuring out what the right person to hire is took a minute. And once we did that, we built a just phenomenal team. Many of them who are still with us, Right, I've got 10 years of tenure. We've got other people with 10 years and nine years and eight years and, It really builds a great team, builds a great culture, which in turn builds a great product.
2: How about what what were some advantages you saw for yourself becoming the VP of product with an engineering background? Because that's something that we get asked about a lot by our guests. Like, hey, do I have to be able to code to be able to be in charge of product or what will I know or not know? Listening to different people, I formed my opinion on this, but I'd I'd like to hear your, your opinion on what it means to be the VP of product. Cause you said you're very customer focused. So I think that's a must, Yeah, but you also know how to make what, you know, the person's asking for.
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely helps. I think that it, it definitely helps to, to root some things in, in reality on, you know, if you're, if you're in sort of high level discussions and people are starting to think about, well, what if we did this and what if we did that and the other, and you know, one of the biggest truisms in, in technology is that people who don't know actually how to build the thing will always have a, an inverse inverse ratio of how they, how difficult they think it is or how long it's going to take, yeah. right? If they're like, this is going to be impossible. Engineers are like, no problem. Got it. <laughs> and like, this should be easy. It's the hardest thing you could ever imagine possibly doing. So having a person running product who can help translate that a little bit helps. The other thing that it, I think it helps a lot is it gives you just some credibility when you're in a room with a bunch of people who are going to be building the thing, right? It gives you the ability to say, you know, without having to say like, I could do your job, which is a horrible way to approach it. Um, you can approach it with a particular type of empathy that gets the conversation to a really good place, right? I mean, product managers—product is the hardest job in software, I think. Product managers and and the product team—it is really, really, really hard because you're accountable to everything, but you can actually not do any of it. So you know, it's all accountability without authority or accountability without uh, ability to get things done. So you have to like use influence and you have to figure out how to get teams to see that the mission is everybody achieving together, right? So you got to bring designers and engineers and product managers all together. But if you're able to to really talk their talk when you do it and empathize with the difficulties they're going to go through with having context, right? And like, well, this is why we think it's the right thing to build. This is what customers are telling us. How can we turn that into code or design or whatever else? I think it's really helpful.
2: So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about MailChimp is that it's built such a huge customer base. But like you said, focusing on, let's say, smaller businesses, even though I know enterprises use MailChimp, right? The, the thing that's interesting is if you were to ask someone who their target market is, right? In, in technology. Some people say you have to go enterprise because you make the bigger contracts, longer secure deals. They say SMB is dangerous because they're fickle. They want a lot. They pay very little. They're also, because you don't charge a lot, it's easy to replace. right? Right. It's easy to walk away from a $30, $5, $9 a month investment. In your case, sometimes free, freemium, free investment. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about when you hear all these product feedback loops, uh, that's one of the interesting things because we hear from product people They always say, hey, I got to talk to customer. But in reality, you have so many customers. I don't know how you even begin to juggle it. You know, one of the things, it's one thing to be an enterprise business where we have a thousand customers. Well, that seems much more manageable. But, you, you know, you mentioned before how many customers or active accounts you guys have. I'm sure there's feedback loops coming from everywhere. So how did you prioritize what you would invest your energy and engineering resources towards?
1: Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I, I really do think it's it's both harder and easier when you have that many customers. Uh, it's a lot harder because there's a lot of noise, but then you know there's no way you can talk to twelve million customers, yeah, but if you talk to ten, you start to think, am I actually getting a good sampling right am i am I just getting biases from these particular users? So what we had to do and what we're what we hope we're pretty good at is identifying which users are sort of super users that fit that fit a criteria or fit you know, a, a particular use case or a particular persona that can represent all of the other users. Another thing that's really helpful there is to have uh, agency partners and folks who are, they are working with customers and they're helping make customers successful. And then you can rely on them to aggregate and gather data that they're hearing from everyone. They're hearing from every single person at this part of your email editor is super difficult and making it hard for them to send emails. We're like, okay, well, that's a thing that we should fix then. If every single one of our agency partners yeah. are working with all of these other clients, they can really be forced multipliers.
2: So the other thing that's interesting is, and you're uniquely in this position is talk it because you're both engineering side and product side, is marketers are traditionally very difficult to work with because they ask for things <laughs> that they don't. Like I remember working for marketers for, cause I was at a software company that handled social media management. And I remember they would ask for things very design centric, like, Hey, can you animate this? And I'm like, what does this have to do with the product? Uh, but marketers are traditionally, they, they ask for like a lot of design, let's say design centric feature requests. Yeah. How about those when those came in, how did you evaluate those? Because in a way they have to make sense to you because you are building a tool for them to build, like you said, design based, Uh, you know, like the product built with MailChimp, an email, a landing page is design centric. That's the reality of it. So how did you juggle those requests and, you know, evaluate those as part of the MailChimp platform?
1: Yeah. So when you say design centric, you mean things like um, make our templates look really good or.
2: Yeah. The aesthetics, the beauties, the animation, you know, Cause I remember like animation is one of those things where it's really, really tricky because people will, because people are thinking Pixar. I, I know that for a fact, <laughs> can, can you build, you know what I mean? Like when I'm a gold, imagine I'm, you know, Al's gold, Al's aquarium shop. And I say to Eric months, like, Hey, it'd be really cool if I could animate my fish on the email. You know, I'm not thinking about a pixelated gif. I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm trying to see Nemo swim across the email because that's what I'm thinking. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that'd be a pretty sweet email. <laughs> figure out how to, how to get that, get, how to get that one put together. Yeah, I mean, so you know, the the great thing with with our with our volume, as our volume started to really increase, we could do a bunch of data science on the emails and figure out what works well, right? And then part of our promise is that we make you look like a pro, even if you know you're just one person. And so. The other great thing is that we had just, and we still have just an absolutely phenomenal design team. So some of it is that our design looks so great, users trust us to give them an idea of what their design should look like, right? If you come to MailChimp, MailChimp.com, or you look around or you look at any of our advertising or any of our marketing materials, you're pretty wowed because we've got such a phenomenal creative team. And that actually makes it really easy for us as you know, product developers and product teams to build things that users are going to trust that are going to make them look good. So it actually wasn't as hard for us as it might seem like it, it would have been. Also, we we took a lot of effort to grab third-party designers and prop up their work. And you know, I remember we did a campaign, and I think it was in 2010. I think it was one of the maybe it was one of the first things I even added to the system. It gave us the ability to to have third-party developers. Build templates. Um, we actually had third-party designers design the templates, and then we had our internal uh, email editor person build all the templates. And then we could let users use these templates that came from like, you know, phenomenal world-class developers. And it just gave us a whole bunch of cachet on on design aesthetic. No,
2: that's wise. I mean, <laughs> letting someone else social proof you. Yeah, that's a that's a great way of attacking it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I also want to talk about is how MailChimp over the years, over the decade, has scaled in regards to infrastructure, because you're in charge of that as well. Uh, (laughs) When you first started, you had made mention, we talked about this before the recording started. How many emails, like you mentioned, a million a day would be astronomical. How many, like, give us an idea. In 2010, you were sending... How much email?
1: You know, I don't even remember the numbers from back then. We were so busy just uh, dealing with the scale as we were growing that I don't, I really don't even remember the numbers, but it was, we were probably hitting, we were probably hitting million, million email days by that pretty consistently, probably by the, by around, around that time.
2: All right. Now, fast forward now. To where you are today, you are currently sending how many emails a day?
1: Well, we, uh, we send over a billion a day now. Over a billion. Over a billion a day on, you know, on average. And then this past week, we have some really great, great numbers. On Black Friday, we sent over 2 billion. <laughs> and then um, our, <laughs> our head of delivery gave us some really great stats. And there's an individual second that we were able to pinpoint was our peak second where it was about eighty-one thousand emails during that second. Wow, um, which is like a lot.
2: <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it's a it's a bananas number. Two billion. We're not talking about two billion a day. Let's talk about like some of the support scaling infrastructure that has to occur to make something like this happen. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you learned about these things and how we were able to implement them. Because one of the things that I think about is you know, when it comes to the product or service, mailchimp offers. One of the critical aspects of it is, you know, does it deliver? Obviously your customers will not tolerate, they they have, they have to have a certain level of delivery, right? It's gotta be a certain number. And I definitely want to hear that number from you guys. The next thing you happens is a lot of it is scheduled, right? Meaning people aren't there actively pushing it. So if it fails, then they, they don't really know about it. Cause like, like you said, Black Friday, they're probably with their family or something like that. Uh, so it can't fail. The third thing is, to them, to us, to an outsider email, what's the big deal? Does it send or not send? But you know exactly how much money is tied to an email. It's, and it's a, it's a crazy number for some of these. I'm sure you've seen some of the numbers of what, these, like what every email literally means to a business. And especially in a time of pandemic, we know businesses are struggling. So like this email is mission critical. It's scheduled up. It's concurrently scheduled up with 81 other thousand emails a second, apparently. And uh, you, cannot, you cannot fail to deliver, Eric. You cannot <laughs> talk about what it takes to build an infrastructure that supports that type of service load.
1: Well, it takes a good bit of time and a good <laughs> bit of learning and uh, some patience and some really late nights on call. At least that's what it took us in the, the first few years I was here. So, you know, our infrastructure, we, uh, we have a chief architect, a guy named Joe. He's amazing. He's been with the company just for six months less than I have. So um, he and I have worked together a ton on all of this and um he really he and i both really believe that boring technology is the way to go right so it should be the type of thing that you you know you use a technology that you know is trusted you know is going to work and uh you can remove a bunch of cognitive load and just work on the other pieces so like we we you know we're a lamp stack right at least at least we we were when we started we're sort of migrating into a into more of a service-based architecture and, and migrating to the Google Cloud. But, you know, we started with a generic LAMP stack, uh, making heavy use of MySQL. and made heavy use of background processing and a ton of monitoring. You have to do just an unbelievable amount of monitoring. And then your sharding strategy is really important, right? So how do you, how do you scale? Well, uh, you, can, you, know, you can scale in a bunch of different ways and we used a, a sharding strategy. When I started, You know, if you log into MailChimp, you got to log into MailChimp.com. You log in and then you're in the app. Right. You can look at the URL and it'll say US and then a number.admin.mailchimp.com. And that number is what we call a master shard. And we keep about, you know, about up to like a million or so user records in in one of those. And that includes like new user records who started and then people who went inactive and shut down their account and, and all of that. And so when I started, it was just one. And that first year, we added our second. We now have twenty-one, and um, we've gotten really good at at getting those shards beefed up and um, making sure they're taken care of, and migrating, and you know, just really keeping our eye on our infrastructure and our architecture. You know, when you when you say how do you send all those emails, you saw me dancing. I know it's a podcast, so your users won't see me dancing. <laughs> you use the word deliver, which like makes me want to like jump through the screen and hug you because that's really the thing. We didn't send 2 billion emails on black Friday. We delivered 2 billion emails and delivering, delivering email is the super, super sending no matter if the customer doesn't get it. (laughs) Customer doesn't get it. Who cares? Yeah. And honestly, that's actually what's really interesting for MailChimp as a platform is that delivery is, is hard and it's a big part of it. And we have a phenomenal team that does just an amazing amount of work, but That's really where where the story begins, right? At least when it comes to the email side of things, because delivering it starts it and then they open it, which gets tracked. Yep. They click it. And then when they click it and they go out to do a thing, they may now land on a MailChimp property, right? So uh, a website that we host or a landing page that we host or a third-party service that we're integrated with. And our promise to our customers is that all of those things, all of those activities the user is taking is going to drive their marketing properly. right? So if uh, I deliver you an email on Black Friday and you open it on your phone and you go look and you're like, oh, I don't really like that Nike, but then, oh, I like this other one. Maybe I like that one. I got busy. I'm going to do something else. Later that day, MailChimp needs to send you a follow-up email saying, hey, we saw you were here or you stuck something in your cart and you abandoned it. Here's 5% off or last chance to get it before it before it goes, go and go and grab it because that could make the small businesses year. It could keep that small business in business for another year. So our promise is that that actually happens. And so that means that we have to be really, really, really resilient and make sure that, you know, things like, like thundering herds for traffic. Don't, don't pull down our site. Right. Are you familiar with that term? No, I'm not. So um, here's a great one. Uh, The singer Adele, at one point, was using our platform and um, sent out a, uh, at midnight, I'm going to send out an email that's going to let you go and buy a ticket to my concert. So she sends it out midnight and a million people immediately go (laughs) claiming to go and grab tickets. So a thundering herd in technology means, you know, when your servers are basically doing nothing, and then all of a sudden they're doing a ton of work. So you have to make sure that that's accounted for, right? You have to make sure that that doesn't actually bring down your infrastructure because it goes from nothing to way past capacity like that. And you can imagine that happened all day, every day on Black Friday. So, um, you know, you have to do some some batch in, batch in the background processing and make sure that all of that's taken care of, make sure all of that's monitored. There was a time where where all of those things didn't work perfectly. So we had to learn you know, at the course of the last 10 years, how to harden the infrastructure and make all of that all of that work well.
2: So you made a comment I caught, you mentioned that you're now moving to a public cloud service. Is that accurate?
1: We are. That's correct.
2: So that means so prior to that, you've built you've built all your scaling tools. Like I know like the public clouds now offer, you know, tools that like scale, load balancing, or you know, some of the things that you're talking about that you had to worry about. They claim that they have it covered for you. You mentioned before you had to build tons of monitoring services, it sounds like to make sure these things were happening. I'm curious. What was your reliance on? It sounds like you were building a lot of systems to do this. That's right. Because I don't know if there's a, there was probably, there might not have been tools I could handle or could be load tested under the loads, which you were putting services under. Yeah. So I'm curious, how much did you, how much of this infrastructure did you have to build yourself? Cause you know, like I mentioned before, just the other people didn't, other people didn't know what their loads were. And since you kind of do, it's like, Oh, well, I don't know if you can work for me. <laughs> Every, everyone always yeah. finds its limit, right? Like, I believe like Epic Games crashed AWS at one point, you know, with, with oh, yeah. Fortnite was at its peak AWS. is like, I guess we can't scale to that.
1: Yeah, well, we started, <laughs> when I started, we were in managed hosting. So um, we were fully managed hosting at at Rackspace. Uh, we ended up moving to full managed hosting with SoftLayer before they were bought by IBM. And then we decided we we needed to, To take matters into our own hands. So we moved actually into co location. So as of today, we're still co located. We manage a little over 3,000 servers in two data centers in Atlanta and one in Seattle for disaster recovery. Yep. But yeah, we, uh, you know, part of the reason was IP management is really important when it comes to email. Like this is getting really in the weeds and super nerdy on email management, but
2: I'm familiar with this. Yeah. Tell our audience why IP management matters. It
1: matters a ton. So if you imagine, if you imagine you're hotmail and you're just getting tons and tons and tons and tons of email in, there's a few things that you can rely on, right? You can do content scanning and try to rely on, does this content look like phishing? Does it look good or not? The sad reality is that a, a spammer, fisher, and a marketer tend to look the same content wise.
2: Yep. Especially now it's getting even more closely resembling the official, the official, like I got like a, a phishing email from Apple recently that I just, I legitimately thought it looked exactly like an Apple email.
1: Yeah. So if you rely too heavily on that, you end up uh, with too many false negatives on, on spam. So what the ISPs tend to do is they, they look at the IP address that the email is coming from and whether they can trust those emails or not based on content filters and users reporting into feedback loops, calling it spam or whatever else. And then your IP addresses get the reputation. But your IP address can't just go from nothing to great reputation, you know, in a minute. You have to, like, you have to warm it up. You have to warm it up across all of the ISPs. And so because of that, your IP address that you're sending from from your mail transfer agent, also called an MTA, it needs to be actually mapped directly to the MTA. So, you know, if we were to go to a cloud provider, we'd need to be like, hey, we've got... 20,000 IP addresses <laughs> map to the hardware, are you cool with that? <laughs> and they would be like, nope, not so much. So it makes it, it, makes it basically impossible for us to go to a, um, a, a fully, you know, fully cloud environment, including the MTAs and all of that. There are some now that seem like maybe they're gonna be able to do it, but for now we're sticking with that infrastructure in our co-location environment and we're moving to more of a, a service-oriented environment um, actually in the Google Cloud.
2: So for yourselves like how did you uh, how did you handle during that scale you know arguably you're still scaling, you're still scaling you know you're going to probably one day if everything goes the same you'll probably once again hit hit a load that maybe a service that you were depend on or either infrastructure built yourself is going to it might fail how do you prepare the amount of load testing for your own infrastructure for your own services to prepare for that. Cause I mean, you have to, I'm, I'm sure you're always testing more than you currently send uh, curious how, what your methodology is to make sure that, you know, there's no downtime. It sounds so silly because like email is not mission critical, but to your customers, it is, you know what I mean? Like it's got it, it's got to go.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's totally mission critical. You know, I should knock on wood. Cause we actually don't do, we don't do the kind of load testing that you might think we do, right. Where we're just like, Hey, let's, let's make sure it's going to go out, like this certain amount of load hitting a server is going to not pull it down. Right. So with an MTA, we may we may do some load testing on internal emails or or accounts that, you know, we know aren't mission critical or sending transactional email or something like that. But in general, we sort of know that if we are statically over provisioned, the things are going to are going to pan out pretty well. And, you know, because we use boring technologies and we know what they're capable of, we sort of know, Okay, we know what they're capable of. We know this is going to last for us. One of the things that's interesting, though, is. As we move into a marketing platform, we're going to need more elasticity across across scale, right? Because sending emails and then responding to the events that happen from delivering those emails is pretty well contained, right? Like you know, you're only going to get so many clicks and so many opens based on how many emails are delivered. But if we are hosting websites for small businesses, that thundering herd issue becomes a totally different problem, and we need to add elasticity. So yeah, um, a lot of our infrastructure and what our teams are working on is. Making sure that all of the scale and elasticity is there as we move to, you know, really move into marketing platform world. And it's super interesting. It's really, really compelling challenge if you're into infrastructure.
2: There you go. I mean, that's like the number one thing people are afraid of now uh, is, you know, if everything goes to plan that when I, however, I communicate with customer. That I actually can't sell anything because you know whether it's the landing page or the transaction system, anything that's down in that in that window of time yeah. because there's another thing about like the modern customer also that makes it really challenging for where where you sit is people have just such low patience, you know <laughs> they I mean it's true they have low patience, so if if Mailchimp's building me a landing page and it loads slow, no one wants to wait, no one's going to want to wait for that, so. And we already know that the amount of page visits people take on a website continues to diminish. Like people want to be served. If you think about all the top application platforms, they tend to serve you content versus like, have you searching because people don't even want to search anymore. They just want to be like, Hey, what is good for me? Yeah, (laughs) You get all those problems in your plate too. So that's good. It keeps you on your toes, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, luckily the, you know, the, the infrastructure ecosystem is pretty great right now. Right, If this was 10 years ago, it'd be a lot harder, but you know, all of the edge providers and, you know, all of the things that all the cloud providers have make that even easier, right? And then there's things like JamStacks and things like that that we can really look into and lean on and look at expertise there. Uh, I wouldn't call that boring technology yet. So we're just sort of investigating it and making sure everything's going to play out right. But it's, we're, we're at a great time.
2: So, what about where you see the future of marketing going? Because you're this, you know, like I said, Mailchimp is a marketing platform. You see how customers are behaving and interacting with content. For you know, example, I've long heard there's going to be a demise of email. Yet here I here we go. It's it's now 2020, (laughs) more email than ever is being sent, (laughs) more sales, you're laughing, more sales than ever (laughs) happening because of email. So people said, oh, text is going to take over. Except I know opt-in rates for text are much much lower, right? (laughs) So talk to me about where you see the future marketing, where you see the future consumer behavior, and what you know, what products or services are you excited to be working on to serve that demand in the future?
1: Yeah. That's also a really great question. Uh, I love pondering, pondering that. I love pondering the demise of email and when it'll happen. And, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be because we did something, um, <laughs> did something great. We gave our users something more awesome than email.
2: You inserted it into someone's brain.
1: <laughs> yes. We stuck it straight in. Um, you know, I, I think that the first, obviously the most interesting thing is mobile, right? So, you know, when, when I talk about us being a B2B2C customer, we need to think about how our users talk to their users and how their users are expecting to engage with the brands that they engage with and buy from and all of that. And it's just all on mobile, right? It's just, I mean, so much of it is happening on hand, handheld devices these days. You know, I, I'm i looking forward to hearing some stats as to whether like COVID really changed that this year. if. if people not having commutes or traveling changed that a bunch when it comes to like overall global commerce and, and the way people engage with their phones. I don't think it, I don't think it will. It didn't for me. Yeah.
2: I don't think it had any impact. I think people probably use their phones even more.
1: I think probably use it more. Yeah. Totally the same. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we're thinking about mobile and um, thinking about it for our customers and how they engage with their customers. And then when it comes to, you know, you, you mentioned like email or text or all of that, that's, you know, I call that a channel, right? That's a delivery channel, right? And so there's, a, there's two-way channels. There's like the way that our customers talk to their customers. So it's a way that any, anyone doing marketing talks to, talks to consumers. And then the other direction is consumers talking to them, right? And like going to either going to their site and engaging with, with their site in some way. And what I find really interesting is I have this thing that I think about in the customer experience world where uh, I call it a staring contest. And I think that like a lot of consumer applications end up accidentally having staring contests with their users. Where like, if you go to a website today, like you go to MailChimp.com, it, you know, it happens on our site. You go to MailChimp.com, you load it up and it just stares at you and you just stare at it. And it's like, one of you has to act, right? Like <laughs> someone has to do something or you're just going to sit there and like, who's going to blink first. And so as things get more intelligent I'm really interested to see how we can help remove the staring contest. I always think that software companies selling software, they have certain buzzwords that become really popular across how they work with with their customers. And then eventually those same buzzwords catch on for their customers and how they work with, with them. So an example there for me right now is customer experience, right? Like, yeah, it is the rage in all of tech companies. Everywhere you go, everywhere it's CX, 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 CX. It
2: means everything and nothing at the same time. Right.
1: It means everything and nothing at the same time, <laughs> and you know, for good reason. It's it's important because it is it, it can be really differentiating for me. It comes down to comes down to trust, and comes down to like, well, do I have any joy using this product, right? And so the next wave, I think to be a really great SaaS company is to figure out how to get your customers helping have a great customer experience for their customers and what that looks like.
2: Well, I mean, it seems to make sense traveling down the path of landing pages. It sounds like you're building some pretty unique, let's say, product or service centric experiences so someone can consume and learn about a product in a unique way. Yeah. More so than you know, let's say a static web page that hey, you can look at like three pictures and this is the product.
1: Yeah. I, I like to think about I have this thing that I call the distance to magic, which is like uh how far back in time do you have to go before the thing you just did with your piece of technology was magic to you, right? Like my canonical example is uh when I use Google Translate on my phone. Have you used that before where you you hold your camera up to something in a different language and you just look at it and it translates it for you?
2: I have done that in I did it when on my trip to Taiwan a little earlier because I can speak Chinese, but I can't read it. And I've done it in in South America. It works pretty darn good.
1: And every time you do it, it's magic, right? Like you're just like, well, that is magic. So that one has a really, has, has what I call a really great distance to magic. The distance to magic is zero, right? It's like (laughs) the time you used it, it was absolute magic, right? And things like delivering email and building really great looking emails, it felt magic to people 10 years ago. Maybe sometimes it still feels magical to people. So when I'm thinking about like the customer experience and what we can provide to marketers, like what what can we do that increases the distance to magic that makes it or decreases however however way you're looking at it? Yeah. As you use the thing, you're like, wow, that was pretty magical. Or, you know, wow, a year ago, that would have been just unbelievably magic. And thinking about how we can then extend that so that our customers' customers have that experience with our customers.
2: I mean, that's both physical and digital experiences that you're talking about, that distance to magic. Yep. Amazon, it made it magical to get two-day shipping. Now, people are like, well, why is it taking so long?
1: (laughs) 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 10 years ago, it was absolute magic. Now (laughs) it's like, like...
2: (laughs) why is it not here yet? It's been literally 25 (laughs) minutes, bro.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's a perfect example. Yeah.
2: Right. What does it take to impress somebody? I mean, it's a great thing to think about because it's true. You know, if we think about e-commerce, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your clients, I know a lot of clients are e-commerce based or similar where people experience the product or service through a website first. It really doesn't, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, since, since its inception, things look better, but they load a little faster, but it's still flat pictures yeah. that a person loads up, copy to describe it maybe a video to see how it works, but no, those experiences are still relatively the same.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the only pieces of magic that I feel like have really been sprinkled in recently, what maybe the last five or 10 years or so is, is the final checkout process, the payment process, right? If I'm on my phone and I'm, and I'm, you know, I go and buy a pair of shoes and I see the, the pay with Apple, cause I'm a, I'm an Apple user. Now I, I finally made the switch. If I see that, I know I can just press that button and then double-click the power button, and boom, my shoes will be on the way. That's pretty magic, you know. It used to have to be like, oh gosh, I gotta fill in my name again. Yep. What's my credit card number? Where's my credit card? Do I even have it with me? You know, all of that other stuff. That's gotten pretty magical.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what experiences that become magical for us, and then, you know, obviously also what experiences you create.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: Eric. So listen, it's time now for our audience to get to know you a little better. This is where we ask you questions via the lightning round. It's just quick rapid fire questions. So people get to know you a little bit outside of just MailChimp. All right. All right. Before we begin, the lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. All right, Eric, you ready to get going? Let's do it. All right. It says on your Twitter profile, you're a fan of self-defense. It also says you're from Auburn. Are you a sports fan?
1: I am a sports fan.
2: Is Auburn going to be as good as Alabama anytime soon? No. <laughs> if someone <laughs> could play you in a movie, who would it be?
1: <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, someone asked me this recently, and my best answer is my wife thinks I look like Jesse somebody who's way better looking than me. We're both biracial. We're both bald. He was on Grey's Anatomy. That's all I got.
2: All right. We got, I got to look that up. <laughs> <Okay>. Jesse somebody. <laughs> Jesse, Jesse from Grey's Anatomy. I'm not going to lie. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy, but I can look look this up on IMDb or something like that. (laughs) So you've listed that you've lived from Hawaii. You lived from Hawaii to Atlanta. Is that accurate?
1: Yep. Born in Hawaii.
2: All right. Where's been your favorite place to live?
1: Oh gosh. Hawaii by far. My superpower is I can make any conversation about Hawaii. It's the greatest place on earth.
2: Okay. Why do Hawaiians always make statements as questions? (laughs) <laughs> the sun rises in the east yeah <laughs> like uh, uh, yeah sure <laughs> it's
1: just because the, the island is chill we just have a good time right <laughs> how often do you go back oh i tried to go every two years we had a big trip scheduled for july this year uh, covid covid put the kibosh on that one so hopefully next year
2: aaron our producers found out that he, jesse williams is probably the reference point that's right jesse williams
1: Jesse Williams. There we go.
2: Okay. So for our female listeners, they, may log, they, they might try to look you up. So if you start seeing some LinkedIn creeping, it might be because of us.
1: I think the similarities end at biracial. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who is your favorite superhero or supervillain?
1: Ooh, that's a great one. Well, oh, it's tough. I like Batman because he doesn't have any special powers. He just like uses his brain and that seems like maybe a thing I could do. So I'll go with that.
2: Now you got to be Batman, the guy that makes all the stuff for Batman. That's who you are.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Batman just, he just
2: has money. Batman just has money. The uh, fi- L- Lucius is the one that makes them all this gizmos and go. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you picked up any hobbies in 2020?
1: I have actually. So I, prior to 2020, I've been unable to keep a plant alive ever in my life. I killed an air plant, which um, <laughs> is but pretty decent work. So I started gardening and it worked out super well this year. Uh, Maybe because I was home and was able to just go outside and pour some water on them. And I talked to my mom who has like the greenest of all thumbs. But yeah, I did a great job. I grew a bunch of herbs. I grew some vegetables. I ate cucumbers out of my yard. I grew carrots from seeds.
2: Yeah, it's the man of the earth. This guy's guy's king of preparation now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm on it. I can't wait for next year.
2: Now, Eric, before we close, What's one piece of advice you'd like to give someone who's like you, you yourself or a you know, highly motivated, aspirational developer. He wants to work for a new hot startup. He has bigger aspirations. What advice would you give him or her?
1: Uh, that's an interesting one. I would give them the advice that a great manager gave me back when I said I was super grumpy engineer guy. <laughs> and uh, it is to learn the power of listening and just figure out how to listen to the people around you. Listen to the business and make sure that when you join a business, you care about the business because uh it'll really motivate you. And if you're caring about the business and not the title or you know the pay or whatever else, you'll be motivated to do different work. I think title and pay are very important, but make sure you actually care about the business and its customers. And that'll be a big thing that drives you forward.
2: Great advice from Eric. And let me tell you something. If you do follow that mo it's easier to get paid in promotions because you can say look at all these things i've done for the customer and very few ceos will look at that negatively they're going to look at it like wow you've done a lot for our customers that's always a good thing to show if you want to prove how much you've done for the company totally. eric i want to thank you for joining us today on it visionaries thank you for sharing your journey from blackberry development to sending a you know eighty one thousand emails a second <laughs>
1: That still sounds so amazing to me. Big kudos to my team for being able to make that happen. And thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Really appreciate it.
0: IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.